in John Bunyan's work, The Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, was on a arduous journey to the celestial city. During this long journey, he and his friend Hopeful were caught and captured by a man by the name of Giant Despair. Both of them were locked away in Doubting Castle. As Christian laid locked away in Doubting Castle, the darkness of despair began to surround him. After some time, he reached a breaking point. He said to his friend, Brother, what shall we do? The life that we now live is miserable. For my part, I know not whether tis best to live or to die out of my own hand. My soul chooses death rather than life, and the grave is easier for me than this dungeon. Shall we be ruled by the giant? Christian thought that death by his own hand would be the one thing that could give him relief from the pain and suffering that he felt. Christian thought that suicide would be the answer to his darkest hour. Perhaps that's you this morning. Or perhaps you've been in this place before. Perhaps you also have taken up residence in Doubting Castle and have found yourself like our friend Christian, locked away without a glimmer of light and hope, surrounded by despair. Friend, if you haven't been there, trust that you will be there. No one is immune. Bunyan's point is that all pilgrims at some point in some way or another find their way to Doubting Castle. Perhaps the season is short or long. What are we to do though? What are we to do when when we are in the the darkest trials of life? Are we to merely ignore it? To spruce the place up a bit? To put a smile on our face? To put a facade on? To to put a mask over our eyes? To wipe our tears and, and to gather with God's people and say, everything's fine. I know good Christian people aren't to, to cry and to be in pain. When we feel that death would be the only escape, what are we to do? Well, thankfully, Christian wasn't alone in that that dungeon. He had a friend with him named Hopeful. And Hopeful encouraged him to find hope, not in death, but in the life giver, Jesus Christ. To find hope in God in the midst of the darkness of life is what all of God's people are invited to do. And to be clear, this doesn't mean that the darkness just fades away. Just because Christian found hope didn't mean that they were immediately freed. They would eventually be freed from Doubting Castle and they would continue their arduous journey to the celestial city. But God used that to teach a lesson for which would be used later in the journey toward that great city. This morning, in our text in 1 Samuel, we come to perhaps some of the darkest, most fearful, frightening days. More frightening than Goliath. More frightening than Saul, David faced in these chapters 
a place that was not called Doubting Castle, but a place called Nob, the city of the priest. And there David would face his fear full on. He would lose hope, desert to the enemy, find himself locked away in a cave in the wilderness without hope, without the light and glimmer of deliverance. But God would use it as time would go on to teach him to trust the Lord. These sweet psalms that we've considered this morning were pinned as a reflection upon these trials in David's life. So much so that he could write that he had tasted in the midst of trial. And he had seen that the Lord was good. That even in the midst of darkness, that even in the midst of suffering, that God is still good. That he's still trustworthy. This is where we find ourselves this morning. David is on the run from King Saul. King Saul is going crazy, as we've seen. And for King Saul, he, he had failed to be the king that God wanted for his people, the, the king that the people needed, primarily because King Saul had failed to, to follow the, the Lord's commands. Very simple and straightforward commands he was unable to obey. Rather, he obeyed his own commands, his own words. But though the people and their king had grown in rebellion against God, the Lord demonstrates tremendous faithfulness to his people by raising up a king they all needed. A king, we are told, after God's own heart. Uh, Many weeks ago, we considered how David had been anointed as the next king by Samuel. The only problem was, is that Saul was not quick to abdicate the the throne. Saul gripped in and held tight to the throne. He, He was unwilling to step aside, but he dug his heels. And he eyed David, the next king, as his great enemy. David has gone from the victor over Goliath and the lead general in the armies of Israel to a fugitive on the run. He has gone from sitting at the king's table to acting like an insane person in the enemy's land. And in these what are called the fugitive chapters of David's life, we see that they will will provide a formidable time for him to learn the kind of king he needs to be. As he stares down some of the darkest, glimmest, and scariest moments of his life, all of them will be used by God to shape and to form him into the king that he needs to be. But more than that, I hope you see this morning, King Jesus. In these texts, you will see Jesus so clearly. Jesus even referring to some of these events in David's life as as an arrow pointing, saying, this is me, this is who I am. Eight Eight different psalms were written by King David during this time in his life. Eight different psalms. You have 150 of them. Eight of them is a significant amount written during this season of life, all teaching not only David, but subsequent generations of God's people how to endure life's darkest trials. How we could sing with joy. How one could say that the Lord is good. I invite you to turn this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's page 244 in your pew Bibles. I invite you to, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, to pull that Bible out and, and to open it to page 244. And we're going to read, we're going to, I'm going to read to you, follow along in chapters 21 and 22. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone 
and no one with you. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I charge you. I have an appointment with the young men for such and such place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, a Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped here in a the cloth behind the ephah. If you take that, take it. There is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did not they sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, this man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack a madman that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave at Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah. Of Moab, And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who were standing here, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servant of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Hatiab. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king summoned Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Hatiab, and all his father's house, the priest who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And he said, Hear now, son of Hittib. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait, as at this day? Then Elimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all all to the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of this 
much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood by him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the, pre- then the king said to Doag, You turn and strike the priest. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priest and killed him on that day, eighty-five persons who wore the linen ephod. And, and Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Hillamelech, the son of Hittab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David, and Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, when Doag the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. As we consider these two chapters, I've summarized it in this one sentence. Amid life's darkest trials, or amid the abundance of evil, you must learn to trust the Lord, who alone is trustworthy. Throughout this text, David learned to trust the Lord. He learned amidst the darkness around him, to trust God. We'll see that not only in the text, but also in David's reflection on these events in his life. So in this this passage this morning, uh, I want you to see three reasons why you should trust the Lord amidst whatever trial you're either coming out of, going into, or will experience into the future. Again, I repeat, no one is immune to trial. No one is immune to trial and suffering. Particularly as a follower of Christ, uh, the Bible reminds us again and again, it's those who follow Christ who will suffer. The evil one wants to see our destruction. And so the question then is, is why should I trust the Lord? If it's true that God has brought me to the point of suffering, why should I trust this God? What should I trust about Him? Well, three reasons. Number one, trust the Lord's provisions. Secondly, trust the Lord's protection. Third and finally, trust the Lord's purposes. In the midst of trials, trust the Lord's provisions. Trust that they are perfect. They are exactly what you need, no less, no more. Trust the Lord's protection and trust the Lord's purposes. Verses 1 through 9, we see that David had to learn to trust the Lord's provision. We are told of David's desperate deception. Some commentators of this chapter try to I think sugarcoat this text a bit more than it needs to be. The Bible is not afraid to point out David's faults. David was a sinner. And demonstrated in the text is two really events where David has demonstrated sin. He deceives the priests of the Lord. For whatever reason, David comes to the priest and is unable to trust him. He can't trust the priest, and so he creates this elaborate story that he is on the king's mission. Some commentators say that, you know, the king that David's referring to is God. I think that's a bit too subtle. I think the text makes clear who he's referring to, which is Saul. David, who stared down Goliath, is now on the run in fear of Saul. The one who has evaded Saul time and time again. Twice evading his spear in his hand. Has come desperately and deceived the priest. 
David even confesses his sin at the end of the chapter in 22. Notice what he says. Look with me there. Verse 22. I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. David was unafraid to confess his sin. He had deceived the priest. He had created a situation that made them vulnerable. He needed to learn to trust God's provisions rather than trusting his own means to provide. But even in the midst of David's desperate deception, we see the priest's merciful provision. We are told in the text that David comes asking for bread. David says, listen, I need some bread. The problem was, is the priest didn't have any bread that David could eat. We are told in the text that only bread that was available was the bread of presence, holy bread. This is bread that the priests were instructed through the law of Moses to give, to offer before the Lord. Every day they would bake fresh bread, put it out before the Lord. That bread would sit there all day as an offering to the Lord. A reminder of the manna that came from heaven, that the Lord is the supplier. He's the provider of bread. That's all that was there. And only the priests were allowed to eat it. We're, we're told some elaborate sort of thing here that the priest says, well, let, if you've kept yourself from women, that it's okay. But even that in the law didn't provide. There was no provision that, that anyone but the priest could eat this bread. But what we see the priest do here is show mercy. In other words, that the law of God is fulfilled through mercy and not sacrifice. This priest demonstrates tremendous mercy. And he says, listen, by me showing mercy to you, I'm fulfilling the law for which it was, was commanded. Therefore, I demonstrate. And, and so David receives, we are told in verses 4 through 6, holy bread. In other words, he receives what is the Lord's. What was given to the Lord, he receives. You can say it this way, David ate God's food. Food that was meant for only God and for only those who represented God, which would have been the priest, David was allowed to eat. More than that, after David gets his food and has his fill of food, we're told that he's looking for some weaponry. It's really a sad request if you think about it. Now consider here, the man who stared down Goliath with, with just a sling and a few stones is now looking for earthly weapons. He's trying to engage his problems and his trials with man-made solutions rather than God's provisions. And so he seeks the, the, Lord, the, the sword of Goliath and, and he asks the priest, hey, do you have any weapons here? Now as you think about it, David most likely knew. We're not told what happened to the sword after David put it in his tent, but apparently he offered it to the Lord, as a sort of a, a gift to the Lord. He, he took it to the priest and he says here, because God has provided deliverance over my enemy Goliath, I want to give an, a token, an offering to the Lord as, as a token of God's grace in my life and his victory in my life. Here is the sword. David knows the sword is there. And so not only does David eat the Lord's bread, but he's given the Lord's offering. Again, what we are meant, I think, to take from this is not only David's foolishness, but also God's merciful provisions of David. Though David is imperfect, God will protect his anointed. God will guard his anointed. God will keep them from, he will keep him from destruction. The Lord Jesus refers to this text, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, in each of the gospel accounts in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of them record Jesus referring to this. One day Jesus and his disciples were out in the, grain, out in the fields and they were plucking heads of grain. The problem was it was the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees had created some provisions in which no one should be out in the grain field plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath day. That constitutes work and therefore violates the Sabbath day. And Jesus is out with his disciples plucking these. He's not stealing, by the way. There was 
a provision in the law which permitted those passerbys, those who were traveling, to take provisions from the field for what they needed. They weren't to take more than they needed, just exactly what they needed. And Jesus, though, appeals to this text. He says, hey, did you not hear what David did? When he went to the priest and asked for the holy bread and how the priest gave him that holy bread, what more when the Son of Man, who is Lord of the Sabbath, is here? In other words, mercy triumphs sacrifice. But I think Jesus was making a a bigger point in the text when he refers to this. Jesus is saying, I and the fulfillment of David. I am the Lord's provision. I'm the one whom this points to. I'm the one whom uh, David here foreshadowed when he received only what the priest should eat. Well, I am the high priest. I'm the one who is worthy to eat of this bread and to drink this cup. Consider also what Jesus says in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Verse 27 there, he says, Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Later on, Jesus will say in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Lord's great provisions in our life is the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of life's difficult trials, in the midst of sufferings, it is Christ Jesus who is our great provision. We're reminded that there is no trial too great for which that promise that we just read will not be fulfilled. Do you believe that verse? That Jesus says that all that the Father gives to me will come to me? And I will cast none of them away. And the enemy will not be able to snatch them from my hand. Friend, that that affects the way we share the gospel. It means that all those that we preach the gospel to, all those that the Lord has appointed to eternal life will, will come. That gives us confidence when we share the gospel. It's not dependent upon us, upon our our provision of the gospel, our proclamation of the gospel, but on the Lord's gracious provision of His own Son to die the death that all sinners deserve. Friends, in the midst of darkness, we turn to the Lord to receive our provision and trust that God has given all that we need in Christ. And therefore, we look to Christ, our our bread. Though David was not fully honest and was driven more by fear, Then in trusting the Lord, God demonstrated His trustworthiness. That's hope for you this morning. I'm sure there's moments, even this last week, even perhaps this morning, where you have not trusted the Lord. Where where perhaps you're discouraged, like, man, God has provided, He has has given me all that I need, but yet I'm struggling to trust Him. Let there be hope today. That God is trustworthy. That you can trust Him today. That through the difficulties of life, just as David learned, you too can learn to trust the Lord's provisions. We see secondly in verses 10 through 15, to trust the Lord's protection. We are told that after this event, now that he has been filled with bread and supplied with the enemy's sword, he has this ingenious idea to go to the city of Gath. Now you'll be reminded who's from Gath. Goliath, whom he slaughtered. For whom he is now wearing his sword. 
A sword that we are told in 1 Samuel in chapter 17 is like no other. Even as David himself attested in verse 9, there is none like it, give it to me. David enters into a fearful surrounding. We're not quite sure what David was thinking here, why he has fled to the enemy. Perhaps, as you will see, he will do this two other occasions where he will flee to Achish to find safety in the enemy. Perhaps he's given up hope that him and Saul will ever be reconciled and so better to join the enemy, better to pick sides, perhaps, David thinks. Well, either way, David's surroundings, this fearful surrounding, is created and he is exposed. Surprisingly so, right? The man who's killed the town favorite, everyone in town would have known who Goliath was, and surely they would have known who David was, this small shepherd boy who years earlier had struck him down, and the evidence of which, as I just mentioned, would be on him as he had Goliath's sword. And so they begin to call him out, the servants of Achish. And we're told in verse 12, David took these words to heart and was much afraid. He wasn't just a little afraid. He was much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. Well, in the midst of this fearful surrounding, David creates this sort of really clever masquerade as he begins to act like an insane person. We're told that he began to pretend to be insane. He changed his behavior and began to to scratch on the the doors. He begins to to destroy public property and scratch all over the, the walls of the town and begins to let spit run down his face. In that time period, it would have been unlucky to have crazy persons around you in your kingdom. And so clearly the king is like, get this madman out of here. Get this crazy man out of here. We have a sufficient amount of crazy people. We don't need one more down here in Gath. And, I, and, and what we're meant to learn from this, I'm going to show you in Psalm 34, which we read earlier together, is that the Lord delivers those who trust in him. The point of this text isn't just merely to point out David's cleverness, though it's pretty ingenious what he does. It's the fact that the Lord was the one who was protecting him. I mean, he was up against an impossible situation, was he not? I mean, he is before the king of Gath for which he murdered his general, his great champion, Goliath of Gath, the champion, the one who was known across the land, Finally, the one who is slaying the giant is in our hands. But like sand through your hands, David slips. If you cannot see, I hope you do, but I'm going to refer back in just a moment, or refer back now to, to Jesus. When Jesus was in that field and picking those grains and the, the, the Pharisees were pursuing him, and coming at him, there's a point in which, just moments later, that he comes to the point in which they're ready to kill him. But yet he slips through their hands. Again and again, the Lord was protecting his anointed one. Just as the Lord protected David, so he would protect King Jesus again and again. Well, if you have your Bibles, I just want to look just really quickly. Turn over to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, I want you to see something here. Psalm 34, we read it earlier. You don't want to turn in your Bibles. You could surely turn in your bullets into page 3 or 4, something like that, page 4. Psalm 34. You'll notice the superscription at the top of the psalm. This is not added by the translators. This is in the Hebrew text. We are told that this is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech or before the king of Achish so that he drove him out and he went away. As David was sitting in the cave at Adullam, he reflected and penned this psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord within me and let us exalt his name together. For I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Remember, David was much afraid before King Achish, but God delivered him from his fears. Later in verse 7, the angel of the Lord comes around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Through this dark trial, God had taught David to taste and see that the Lord was good. That not only his provisions were good, but that his protection was good. That he could truly seek refuge in the Lord. I wonder what, what trial are you in today that you need the Lord's protection? What is it that you're facing in your life that, that you need not only the Lord's provisions, but His protection? How is the enemy coming at you, perhaps through temptation? Do you find protection in the Lord? Do you find security in the Lord's hand? Oh yes, you may be locked away in Doubting Castle. Yes, you may feel as if the Lord has, has abandoned you. But brother and sister, find hope that those who trust in the Lord will be delivered. He has promised it. Now, he hasn't promised that that deliverance is coming today. He didn't say that as soon as you pray, magically, mysteriously, deliverance was coming. No, no. He said, I will deliver you. It will come. Hope in the Lord. More than that, can you say in the midst of your suffering that the Lord is good? I know it's, it's easy to say that when there's abundance, when the sun is shining, when life seems to be going well. It, it's so easy to say God is good, amen, right? We run around and we say God is good. We tell people God is good. But when you lose your best friend, when you lose your health, when you receive the notice that you have cancer that will inevitably kill you, when you lose your family because you want to follow Jesus, Whatever it is, can you still say that the Lord is good? That He's kind and merciful? The point of this passage should not be missed. The Lord is the one who delivered David that day. God used this life and He delivered this life. And as we lean on the Lord's provisions and His protections... In verse 22, we want to see the Lord's purposes. In trials and in difficulty, we must learn to trust the Lord's purposes. That God truly does mean good from evil. Now I titled this, this sermon, The Antichrist as King. The Bible often refers to those who are the, the, the one who's the Antichrist. Jesus says there will be many Antichrists to come. And maybe one anti, final Antichrist in the end. In other words, Antichrist is anti the Messiah. Anti the Anointed One. Against Christ. Opposite of Christ. And so when you see Saul, when you read about Saul in your Bible, what you want to see him is not the, the fulfillment of Christ, but all that Christ isn't. The opposite of Christ, the Antichrist. In other words, what we see is a glimpse of the Antichrist to come. The king who is unwilling to kill the, the people earlier slaughters an entire city. 
Well, if you look in your Bible, look at verses 1 through 5, we see that in the, in the midst of this, that safety is found in the Lord's anointed. In three ways, the text makes clear the outcasts gather under David's protection, verses 1 through 2. Do you notice that? David is out in the cave. He's hiding out. He's on the run from Saul. And notice who comes and gathers with him. We're, we're told in verse 2 that, all, that everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bitter of soul gathered to David. He became the commander of a, a sort of a mitfit crew, right? All the rejects of society, all those that Saul had no use for, King David protected. We see also in verses 3 through 5 that David protects his family. He provides security for his family. You might find it strange. Why are they going down to Moab? Why does David take them down to Moab? Well, because his great-grandmother is a Moabite. His great-grandmother... You might remember in the book of Ruth. You ever wonder why the book of Ruth was in your Bible? Well, friend, here it is right here. As a testimony to King David, to legitimize King David, uh, that King David was, yes, born of foreign blood. Yes, he was not fully 100% genuine Israelite. We'll see that something of Ruth, do we not, in this text? You see David acting just like his great-grandmother in providing protection for his family just the way Ruth provided for Naomi. We see a great picture here that the Lord's anointed provides safety. More than that, we're told at the end of the text in verses 20 through 23 that Abiathar finds safety with David. That the priesthood, the linen ephod, is now in the hands of David. David has now all the branches of government in his hands. He has Gad, the prophet, who tells him in verse 5 to go down to Judah. Gad will be David's prophet. Abiathar will be David's priest, and we see the 400 men will be David's army. And this three group here we'll see play out in the chapters ahead all the way into 2 Samuel and throughout as God's purpose here in the midst of suffering was to raise up the next king of Israel. Well, in verses 6 through 20, we see something of a very glim and sad picture, do we not? While David acted insane, we see the, that the king of Israel, King Saul, is the genuinely insane king. He's crazed by obsession over David. He is driven. And while he was unwilling to kill the Amaleks earlier, here he slaughters his own people. Driven more by evil ambition than for fear in the Lord. In Psalm 52, David reflects on this text, as we heard Sean read earlier, about that evil man, oh evil man who trusts in his own riches. Well, that's a, that was an indictment of Doeg, the Edomite. Edomites were never friends of Israel. They were the ones who harassed Israel on the way out of the promised land. They were the ones who harassed Israel as they descended into the promised land. And here we see the Edomites yet again at the center of the slaughter of God's people. If you have your Bibles, just turn to Psalm 52. We won't spend time looking at the details of the death of these men. But I do want you to spend reflecting on David's commentary of these events. Psalm 52. We heard it earlier. Notice the superscription to the choir master. In other words, this is the psalm that the nation of Israel would sing together as they gathered in Jerusalem. This was in their hymnal. They would sing this. A mascal of David when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. 
Why do you boast, O evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all day. In other words, you can be evil all you want. God's love triumphs over your evil. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, a lying tongue more than speaking what is right. You love all works that devour, O deceitful tongue. We see David's hope here in verse 5, isn't it? But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear away, tear you away from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But notice what happened. Notice what happened to David. Remember, David, as a as a as a or excuse me, as Abiathar came to him, his entire family destroyed, entire city set on fire. All of his loved ones slaughtered to death. As David reflected on what he did and how he occasioned their death, did he sulk? Did he complain? Did he give up? What does he notice here in verse 8? But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will wait for your name for it. Oh, I, will get, I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. The Lord had a purpose for David's trial. And it was to teach that the Lord is trustworthy. That he is good that we can truly depend upon him. David also wrote Psalm 57 in verse 2. He says this, reflecting on this event. He says, I cry out to the Most High God, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. I wonder in the midst of your trials, in the midst of life's difficulties, in the, the trial that you're in, the trial you're coming out of, the trial you're going into, do you believe that God is at work, that He has a purpose for your trial? That there's a reason? That it's not just some random act? That you're not just a victim of fate? But that you're in the hands of a merciful God? Now, can you believe Genesis 5 or 50, verse 20? Can you believe Joseph's words to his brothers? That what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Do you believe what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.28? That all things work together for the good of those who love Him. Who are called according to His purposes. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? In the midst of darkness, is that, is that what's on your mind? Or is it, God has abandoned me and forsaken me? Or can you say with confidence what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1.12? I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, what, what happened to him? He got beat to death. He got shipwrecked. I mean, he, he's in prison right now. He is like jailed away, locked away in Doubting Castle in great darkness. He says, you know, what's happened to me? I was, I was kind of thinking about it today. You know what's happened to me? It's really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. Perhaps your suffering isn't really about you at all. Maybe it's about someone else that needs to be encouraged by your faith. As they see you suffer well for God's glory, as you commend the gospel in your suffering, that it encourages their faith and leads them to trust the Lord. David had learned through these trials to trust the Lord's purposes. Though these evil events were evil and wicked, God would use them to bring about the transition to kingship, to assimilate the kingdom in His hands. 
He now had the kingdom in His hands. He now was ascending to the throne. But it was going to be through suffering that salvation would come. If you have your text open there again, back to 1 Samuel. I want to just close with this. Look back there to 1 Samuel and chapter 22. I want to close with this word. Look with me there in verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, that was discontented. They're, they were fed up. They gathered to David, and he became their leader. There was another one to come, another one of David's sons. In Isaiah 61, Isaiah tells us of this coming root of Jesse. Another descendant from Jesse that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He is the Christ, the anointed one. To do what? To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance on our God to comfort all those who mourn. Did you know that king did come? And in Luke chapter 4, in verse 16, we are told this. And when the sun was setting, all those who, had, who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. And Jesus laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him. And he would, he would have kept him from from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Friend, Christ is your great provision. Christ is the only one who can protect you. And Christ is the purpose for which all purposes find their yes and amen. For Christ is the King that we all need. I invite you this morning to repent of your sins, to, to stop living life your own way, and to trust in this King. And there find, find deliverance from Doubting Castle. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we come before you this morning and ask that you would seal our hearts with your word. Uh, Lord, that you would this week as we transition from here be reminded of these truths. The Holy Spirit would be given to empower us to walk in obedience. Father, we glorify you through Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.